if we pulled a 15-year-old off the street and had them watch the Battle of Helm's Deep, they might go, bro, this is cringe. Get this fucking shit out of my face. I don't even see a bit of CGI. I love what you think 15-year-olds sound like, but sure. <laughs> I, I, this is I mid guess. as fuck, and you guys are both chuggy as hell. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are my co-host who lives in San Diego, California. That's right. And you are Cassidy Robinson. You are my co-host who records from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Today we are going to be reviewing Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania, which we both watched in theaters. Yes. And for the streaming homework, we will be talking about the 1993 film Poetic Justice, which is available on Amazon Prime, starring Tupac Shakur and Janet Jackson. Oh, I actually watched this on Tubi. Oh, okay. Well, that that might be better for some people, yeah. I actually think by the time this releases, it won't be available anymore, because I did see a thing that was like, this is leaving in like seven days or whatever. So by the time this is out, you'll probably not be able to watch it on Tubi for a little bit. Oh, okay. I thought you meant on Prime because they love to add and add and subtract things all the time. Oh, maybe. I don't know. It just uh, I just noticed on Tubi. I was like, ooh, okay, getting this in under the wire. Oh, you know, we're all using smart TVs now, so... I don't even really bother looking. I just go to the general search bar Mm -hmm. and just put in the movie title and whatever service it's on that I pay for, I will click it. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. I'll like look it up on my phone first and then uh, and and then figure it out from there. Uh, Which leads me to my first topic. Okay, we are now on Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. I made us a letterbox profile. I'm it's just barely getting off the ground. I still don't really know what it is or how to use it. Um, but what with traditional social media now being more and more throttled with paid verification, oh, um, yeah. we're less likely to pop up in those unless we were to pay for check marks. Um, so they're not terribly helpful anymore. And I know that a lot of people, including other critics and reviewers and, and, uh, film fanatics and such have been using Leatherboxd for years. Yeah. I think Uh, it's, it's kind of from, I've been, I've had it for a while actually as well. And from what I can gather, it's kind of like a totally democratic, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, like, it's like Rotten Tomatoes meets Twitter, kind of. Um, Actually, you know what it is. Exactly what it is. Do you remember Flickr? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It. You're right. It's the exact same. Uh, which yeah. is actually why I don't. Um, I don't give a lot of stuff like rates and reviews anymore because of that. Because I mm-hmm. I did spend time doing that 
previously. And so now I'm just like, eh, this doesn't matter. So I pretty much, I pretty much only use Letterboxd for my personal account to make lists. Right. And a lot of people like to keep up with what they've seen or whatever. Yeah, that's actually, Um, for the last couple of years, that's been how I keep track of my, uh, like my uh, top films of the year. My bottom is all, I'll make a letterbox list that will, you know, as soon as I see something that was like, oh, hell yeah, that's good. I'll put it in that list. And then at the end of the year, I kind of like organize it and put it in order. Um, but now that people are aware that we're on Letterboxd and I have actually gained a couple followers, I'm keeping that shit locked up till fucking January, bitches. You ain't getting no sneak peeks over here. I mean, you know, everything is always in the conversation and and people can come to the podcast to know generally what we liked and disliked. Hopefully they're first. But I made the... Uh, I made the letterbox because friend of the show, Rod, from the Listening Party podcast and from Taco Tuesday podcast, he suggested that we should be using it to list all of our streaming homework. Oh, that's a good idea. Which sounded like a good idea. Yeah. So I've been slowly going back and did that. I have uh, 2001 and 2002s and then the first four or so of this year. Cool. That's and then actually, that as is a time good rolls rolls down and we'll get, you know, to the origins of of uh the McGuffin podcast and hopefully we'll have it'll go all the way back to whatever it was, twenty seventeen. One thing we haven't done with our letterbox so that we should decide on. Mm-hmm. And I decided to use this as a moment for content. Okay. Uh Every letterbox page has a top films, and there's four slots. I figure you could come up with two. I could come up with two. I well, just to okay. kind of give feel- people sort of a a range of our tastes. I feel like two are a no brainer, though. I, I feel like we should get one each, and then you can't say Lord of the Rings. No, no, because that's a whole trilogy. So. Here, okay, you're springing this on me now. So this is raw. This is fresh for the listeners. Fresh for yeah, the list. I don't know either. I I could have like sat and thought about it. And no. So so here's what I'm proposing. So. We actually only get one movie each to pick. Okay. The other two movies are Jaws and a Batman movie of your choice. But I'm proposing Batman Returns. Because we talk about Jaws and Batman all the fucking time. It is kind of an inside joke, um, but I also do adore both of those movies. So, and I yeah, did. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I, I also thought about that. So. so I think we should do those two movies and then each of us gets like a wild card slot that maybe gives us a little more range. Sure, but it has to be something that we both generally agree on. Sure. That that yeah, that's fair. You know, I can't pick like Solo and the 120 Days of Sodom or something. Not that I would. Yeah, cuz but, you know, to, I've never seen it. So. To throw you off. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. So like I don't know about Titan cuz I'm still on the fence about that movie. Oh, I mean, I I I love the movie, but I I don't know if that's necessarily representative of 
the podcast as a whole. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, okay, how about this then? We'll think about it. Oh yeah, I you sorry, you wanted me to pick right now? Yeah, that was that was the idea, but as I guess it's a little bit more challenging than I initially thought. So, yeah, next I feel week, like we need to like yeah, next we week need to think about that. We'll enter in our personal picks or whatever, however you want to whatever you want to call it. I mean, we could we could announce them at the top of the show. We could make a thing out of it, like a little sure. ceremony. That'd be cute. Yeah. And uh, we'll just get into movie news then. <laughs> All right. There's so many things about this first paragraph that are enraging. Uh, well, I mean, I, okay, I feel like you're jumping the gun a little bit, but let's let's get to it. So it says Warner Brothers Pictures has is revamping the Lord of the Rings film franchise. On Tuesday's earnings call, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav announced My that... My favorite fucking person. <laughs> friend of the podcast. Announced that <laughs> newly installed studio leaders Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi have brokered a deal to make multiple, in quotes... Films based on the beloved J.A.R. Tolkien books. The projects will be developed through WB label New Line Cinema, which I guess they absorbed a long time ago. Uh, the first Lord of the Rings trilogy, helmed by Peter Jackson, grossed nearly $3 billion worldwide, blah, blah, blah. Jackson's follow-up trilogy based on Tolkien's The Hobbit matched those grosses, which is actually unbelievable. That could only be because of, uh, of inflation. I doubt that they would, if you account for inflation, that would still the case. It, it, and here's the thing: box office gross is not the same as uh, the gross in our hearts. <laughs> sure. Um, okay, so no filmmakers have been attached to the project as of yet, but in a statement to Variety, Jackson, Peter Jackson, and his main Lord of the Rings collaborators, Fran Walsh and Philip Boyan, said to Warner Brothers. That they have kept us in the loop at every step of the way. Blah, blah, blah. They give it their blessing. Of course they do, because they're going to get a bunch of money. Um, Which is also... Okay, let's start there, first of all. Super weird that, like, Peter Jackson... You know, the the Lord of the Rings movies are, like, the definitive take, right? But yeah. they act like he's Tolkien. You know what I mean? Which I mean, I at this that, point, that, he's as good as Tolkien. Like, I doubt the Tolkien estate has much to do with this anymore. Well, they're, I, they're actually pretty guarded with their rights, which is Doesn't seem like it but, in the last few years. Actually, before we, before we get into our actual opinions of this because i think basically sure. people know how we feel just by the tone and tenor of this conversation um sure i'm gonna steel man the argument that there needs to be more lord of the rings movies and I, the, i'm not okay. even saying things i necessarily believe but the argument would go lord of the rings the peter jackson trilogy ended in 2005 Right? Or 2004? No, I think it was... 2003, even earlier than I originally thought. So... So, in 20 years. 20 years. 2-0. Yeah. 
And if you look at, I know that, you know, time is a flat circle and all of that stuff. But if you look at the course of properties that have been remade, especially IP, especially franchises, especially fantasy, comic book, sci-fi, etc. It's very par for the course for something within that large of a time span. I mean... How long did it take to for a fucking Avatar sequel to come out? I mean, at, th- at this okay, point, they I'm, might as well have remade the first Avatar with green people instead of blue people. Sure, but point. point uh, okay, here's my, here's my counterpoint to that. Okay. Uh, y- yes, you, you're right. Twenty years for IP is is a long time, but the last 20 years in terms of movie technology has not been the same as say the first you know 100 years of movie technology right like right. we haven't progressed that much since 2003 in terms of filming techniques i mean uh, also we have one could argue that mm, okay what has progressed after a certain point and we we you know we're neither of us are like film technicians, so I'm sure there's people who work in VFX and who work in, um, you know, Hollywood, broadly speaking, who would say, are you fucking kidding me? Back then, we were using the Apple iMac, and now we're on blah, 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 or whatever. We get it. Again, there's newer cameras, there's newer everything. We can probably do all of that stuff much more streamlined and faster. But I would say that the technology that's really changed cinema over the last 20 years has not mm-hmm. been so much in visual effects. Um, that's always kind of getting polished and getting better. But mm. um, but it's been more in terms of delivery, in terms of distribution, in terms of sure. the industry. And and in yeah. terms of digital marketing and and all of that stuff, that's been what this last twenty years has really done technologically. But yes, yeah, it, exactly. But as far as the actual making of movies, right? I feel like there was a much smaller gap between this twenty years than there was between you know nineteen seventy three and nineteen ninety three. I know. Was, you, you know what I mean? Like the visual progression, I feel, is much more subtle now. Uh, so w- what new can they do as far as that goes? I don't know. The other thing I'm going to say is as far as IP being rebooted with something like a comic book or, you know, like take Spider-Man, right? Yeah. We've had th- three different versions of Spider-Man. But Spider-Man, there's been way more other story, other source material, right? Like the comics never stopped. There's right. there's so many stories to draw from. There's there's so many different versions of his origin story, even in the comic books, that that is kind of a precedent for comic books versus Lord of the Rings, which is a singular, you know, even those three books, even though... There is a larger mythology behind it. It is a singular story. So what I hear when I'm when I hear we're gonna make more Lord of the Rings is we're going to retell a story that was 
told near perfectly again. And, and I'm like, okay, sure. But like, what's the different take on it? Like, how can we have a different, you know, and if it's not different, then why do it other than a cash grab, which is... I mean, I I know that from our purview, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy um, is is still contemporary. And that might be just a perspective thing. They, if we, if we, pulled a 15-year-old off the street and had them watch the Battle of Helm's Deep. They might go, bro, this is cringe. Get this fucking shit out of my face. I don't even see a bit of CGI. I love what you think 15-year-olds sound like, but sure. <laughs> I, I This is I mid guess. as fuck, and you guys are both chuggy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I feel like you're at, you just sound like a 23-year-old, not a 15-year-old, but... <laughs> Uh, I actually take comfort in the fact that neither of us know what 15-year-olds talk like. They're just categorizing Lord of the Rings as an IP at this point. Yeah. You know what I mean? So does that mean remake the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Not necessarily. And that I can get behind a little bit more, right? Like, are we going to remake The Hobbit? Uh, that's less likely um, you know what here's the here's the crazy thing those movies are Uh even more contemporary and have way less if if that was on the table i would say yes please for the love of god do it now and do it as one one three-hour movie so that for my money is where i'm like okay but then i'm done i don't want to see them do like uh you know we're gonna do three stories about the elves and their battle that took place you know uh thousands of years before the first lord of the- i don't i don't want this to be extended multiple universe bullshit this is where i'm gonna fight with you a little bit here this is where i think there actually is potential if they star wars it and they're like, okay, we're going to take Tolkien's mythology. We're going to take this world of Tolkien and what other stories can we tell? Then I'm a little more interested. Then I'm like, okay, there's probably some cool ass fables buried in the Silmarillion that is so dense and unreadable that it's not worth trying. And that brings me to yet another point. What the fuck is going on with Amazon's Lord of the Rings series? Well, that's what I was going to say. Was- that's that's exactly what that is. And I know you weren't crazy about it. I know it kind of got like mixed to positive reviews, but... My problem with it wasn't the concept of it. My problem is in the execution. My problem is that it's done by showrunners who have clearly never done a show of this scale before and it's done by people who fundamentally seem to sort of misunderstand Tolkien and and his writing i feel like the mythology is is just as ripe as uh the the original star wars trilogy that there's no reason we couldn't go beyond lord of the rings and and tell other stories in middle earth Give me that. That's as a as a fan of Tolkien, that piques my interest. Don't don't retell 
a story that's been told from my perspective about as well as you can tell it. Let's let's do something new with it if that's where we're going. So I mean if if that's where we're going, that's pretty much the only option. I could do without most of the extended Star Wars universe shit with the exception well, of sure, but it, a couple things, but um you know, first of all, you need to watch Andor, bro. That shit is straight fire. <laughs> uh sounding like a 15-year-old. Yeah. Second of all, um <laughs> what concerns me is I don't have that much faith in Warner Brothers as a studio no, to be that, like, oh yeah, yes, or, we want to or H- HBO or or David Sasloff or any of the other names involved. Uh, I mean, I don't predict great things from this, but we shall see. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. And let's see if this makes you any happier. Uh, Mike Mignola and Christopher Golden are now confirming to be writing the script for a live-action Hellboy reboot. Again. (laughs) Another reboot. Listen, a man can only have his heart broken so many times in one lifetime. At a certain point, you start to see the red flags. Uh Um, I mean, I remember the promise of the last Hellboy reboot with um, Neil Marshall. Yes. We we saw a lot of similar early buzz, right? Neil Marshall directing an R-rated reboot of Hellboy. I've already seen the term R-rated Hellboy floating around as if that is some miracle juice. And I know, I, I remember the early articles saying... Mike Mignola, like, was looking at the scripts and he had, like, final say on certain things. So, to me, this is just, like, it's a lot of the same early warning signs, just with a director I'm less familiar with and less less a fan of. Um, Is there a director attached? Is Christopher Golden the, the director? No, no. Christopher Golden is a longtime writer collaborator with Mike Mignola. Brian Taylor. Yeah, the guy who did the Crank movies, right? And they have their fans. I would not immediately think of those movies and then think Hellboy, but... I haven't seen enough of Brian Taylor's stuff. I haven't seen Crank. I haven't seen Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. I did see Gamer. Mm -hmm. um, But it doesn't... He doesn't necessarily see... Like, I don't... See the immediate connection? I don't hear that name and and have it click. Oh, yeah, that makes sense with Hellboy the way that, say, someone like Guillermo del Toro does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had told me HBO Max to do an original series set within the Hellboy universe about the BPRD, then I'm fucking excited, right? Because that is like, oh, we're acknowledging the world beyond Hellboy. The only thing that gives me any kind of glimmer of hope about this is that they are actually focusing on a single Hellboy short story, the uh, Hellboy and the Crooked Man. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, that could be cool if it's just like, you know, again, these are the same promises we got with Neil Marshall, <laughs> uh, that it's going to be based on folk horror. If they actually like do that instead of going for this end of the world 30 years of comics dumped into one 90 minute movie, then sure. 
I mean, it's Hellboy. I'm going to watch it, but I'm I am not optimistic yet. Yeah, I, I would at least have to see a trailer. A whole, I mean, the last one was so bad, I feel like it can only go up, but um, famous last words, maybe. Okay. Let's go ahead and get into our main reviews then, and I'll have you set up Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. Go ahead and tell us what that, what's going on in that. Uh, okay, the third Ant-Man movie... Uh, second Ant-Man and the Wasp movie, uh, like the 27th Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Uh, Scott Lang is living life as a, a celebrity post-Avengers life, um, as a successful author, successful saver of the world. Meanwhile, the rest of his family is uh, still sort of working on sciency projects and have been trying to communicate, have been trying to map out the quantum realm um, where Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, was trapped for so long. And also Paul Rudd was trapped there for a long time, uh, for five years, right, during the snap. That's not really addressed, but whatever. So they're trying to develop this sort of satellite that goes to the quantum realm uh, and sends out a signal which somehow gets them sucked back into the quantum realm where they are trapped, where secrets about Janet Van Dyne's past come out, uh, where she encountered this entity known as Kang, Kang the Conqueror, who has established a little empire since the last time she was there. But now there is some kind of a civil war uh, going on that Ant-Man and crew find themselves in the middle of. Yeah, so I felt very hot and cold with this movie. And I know that, yeah. the, I know that the reviews have not been friendly and... Um, I can kind of see why, but I also don't entirely see why either. Um, I, I think they've been a little unfair both ways, right? Like, I feel like there's the people who notice every flaw and they are definitely there and just use that to shit on it who are just so sick of Marvel movies in general. And I get that. Um, and I get why this movie would not make you feel any better about it. Um, and then I feel like there's the other people who are overly defensive about it right. and and trying to make it seem like it's better than it is. And I I think I am maybe somewhere kind of more in the middle. I, I am I am too. So this was my emotional journey through the movie. The first I wouldn't say third, but the first little bit before we enter the quantum realm, when they're just kind of setting up Scott's world and him doing this book tour, reintroducing us to all the characters and what their deal is, mm -hmm. I wasn't crazy about. I know that the, the Ant-Man has always been light and that the tone is, um, you know, Peyton Reed is a comedy director, was brought in to, to sort of bring what he brings to that or whatever. Um, and it, it leans pretty heavy on... Paul Rudd charm. Um, I would say yeah. 
damn near relies on Paul Rudd charm for a lot of the movies, specifically the for us to get into this world at all, to the point where I feel like there's not much of a character anymore. Like the first Ant-Man, which I'm not going to say is a masterpiece by any means, but he felt like he was playing a character that wasn't just himself. Whereas increasingly, as he's appeared in these films... They've kind of gotten rid of all the things that made Scott Lang as a character interesting, right? Like he, yeah. he unlike the other Avengers, he didn't come from this place of privilege and success. He came from, you know, is more the 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 reason people love Spider-Man, right? Like he was, you know, this sort of scrappy underdog character. Right, and he's an ex-con, and there's all of that stuff too, which is... Yeah, he wasn't a good superhero, but he was a good thief. Right, which... And, you know, the first one was kind of a heist movie in disguise, so there was things to to admire about that. Um, Again... Nobody's favorite Marvel movie. But so the first half hour or whatever, 35 minutes of it or or so, I was like, okay, I kind of get why people are done. Like, this is sort of. Sorry. So you kind of knew the general reception to this movie. Well, how could I not? Yeah. I mean, I I went, I I didn't go Thursday of last week. You know, I went two days ago. So by then, gotcha. you know, we're on the fifth wave of responses, backlashes to the backlashes. Um, I try not, I don't read the reviews, but I generally know what's being said. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, this is pretty obnoxious and a little self-satisfied and, and too aloof. And I do, Scott's a boring character now, as much as I like Paul Rudd. And they seem to take his most interesting aspects and put it in his daughter who is his sort of surrogate, which there's like kind of an emotional arc there that starts with, you know, her getting into trouble and being like this uh, social justice crusader and, you know, doing like civil rights marches and stuff like that. And, you know, very of the time, but it kind of feels like it's just sliced into the salad just to say, hey, we're we're talking about what's going on. Um, yeah, it, and then I, I thought all of that stuff was funny in a way of like we're going to try, you know, we're we're trying to stay connected, but without actually saying anything. Without actually, yeah, because you know, they're Disney. I mean, give me a break. Um, yeah. So then, once we entered the quantum realm, mm-hmm. and the 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 crew gets split up, and it becomes a little bit of. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids meets a little bit of Star Wars and a little bit of, like, you know, post-John Carter-style pulp novel stuff. That I'm pretty into. That, you know, like, seeing, like, the 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 cities and the, uh, the armies and the civilizations that live in the quantum world, it, it, it's extremely pulp. It's extremely... Like Harryhausen-esque in a way, not in terms mm-hmm. of the animation, but in the terms of the type of movies he worked on, like Journey to the Center of the Earth and and uh, Jason the Argonauts and all of that kind of stuff. And it was that sort of uh, pulp sci-fi meets high fantasy with a, with that kind of "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids." We got to get the group back together. We got to find the kids again, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought actually. 
that was good. And I was enjoying that. And I was I was enjoying learning about these worlds. And then by the third act, it just goes into complete autopilot, Marvel overdriven, overextended set piece, a hundred different resolutions and then new problems and then you know what I mean? It's like one extended set piece that just keeps going and going and going yeah. and going and crescendos. And then every time you think it's done, they, they it like comes back for another encore. And it's like, then I was losing my patience, but then it just felt like we're just watching a bunch of CGI shit at that point. Honestly, that was my issue with Endgame. Although I thought that that movie at least had a better context for that happening. But, you know, there's there's certain characters they introduce in the second act when they're all split up that they don't pay off at all. Oh, yeah. They just kind of become part of the smorgasbord. More is more. Ultimate everything on top ice cream sandwich by the end of the movie. And then, then yeah, by, by the end, I've kind of left the theater going, well... That was one of those. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, there's... It, it feels like there's this interesting world, but then they don't do anything with it. And so, because of that, it becomes very generic, right? Like... Yeah. Uh, uh, like, you know, there's these cool characters, like um, weird Cyclops robot guy... Uh, William Jackson Harper's character, the like leader of the rebellion, Bill Murray, like who all just sort of never really come back in any kind of meaningful way. And it's like, oh, okay, what was the point of that character even? Well, they so it, there's, there's it almost kind of feels like they had two thirds of a script written, and then just on the next page they wrote. And then a bunch of shit explodes for 45 minutes. Yeah, I... This movie, I think, actually has a lot of similar issues to Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I can't even really remember what it was about. But at least this one is a little more focused than Ant-Man and the Wasp. But it has similar issues, right? Right. Of the... We're just going to kind of go off the rails, and this isn't even a three-act movie anymore. It's like a weird six-act thing, and then it's it ultimately doesn't matter anyway because it all is just kind of thrown out the window for spectacle. We really have no idea what to do with Evangeline Lilly or the Wasp as a character. Peyton Reed just doesn't really know how to tell a focused story, and... The fact that the first one is even good at all is because it's just a lot more simple of a concept. Right. It's a smaller scale thing. And I I feel like that's like this movie kind of even forgets about Ant-Man, you know, sort of halfway through the movie. This feels more like a, a Michelle Pfeiffer movie. You know, if that's the story that we want this to be, this Michelle Pfeiffer uh, who plays Hank Bim? I can't think of his name. Very famous man. Oh, Mike, uh, <laughs> Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. Like, I feel like they should have been the main characters of this movie. It would have been. It okay. would have been an interesting take. Let, like, you know, let's say they get sucked in the quantum realm, and then Scott and Evangeline are on, uh, or I mean, everyone's on Earth, but in the 
regular realm trying yeah. to figure out how to save them and, you know, and give them the adventure. That would have been way more interesting and and less buildup of Kang as this ultimate menace, which here's the thing. I think, um, you know, everybody says that uh, uh, Jonathan Majors is great. He's yeah, he's menacing. In all the right ways, he does a lot with a, you know, what I think on paper is a fairly generic villain, um, but he's so captivating that you're like, okay, sure, gotta be trying to, like, set him up for this ultimate arcing thing, and I didn't need that. Like, if they just had let the conflict be a little smaller, pun not intended originally, but now very much intended, (laughs) um... I'm leaning into it, then I think it would have been a much more interesting movie. Like, it doesn't need to be this big galactic civil war. Let's make it personal. Let's make it this thing between Kang and Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Like, sure. Like, let it be a personal beef and, and let's pull the scale back and, and let it be about the goddamn fucking characters. And um, I think all it of this tries. Be, I think it tries to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, it tries to throw that in because it knows that it needs to do that, but yeah. it it never becomes about that. No, it's never character oriented. Um, I mean, one thing that they, like I was talking about before, with with uh, the there's supposed to be the emotional arc here, which is between Ant Man and his daughter. And her coming to terms with the family she lives in and his absence as a father, blah, 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 blah. And this is supposed to all sort of play out thematically throughout. But the movie is so, uh, it's too wide, wide scale and too overreaching to focus in on even something as basic as that. Both of those characters have no connection to this place, right? right. So once... Once they're sort of thrown into this, it's like, yeah, I'll be a superhero because that's what I do. I'm a superhero now. You know, whereas let him lean into what the Ant-Man character is, right? Uh, I like the idea of of him not even necessarily being in the quantum realm. Let's keep some people, you know, grounded in the story so that it's – or whatever, sure. But to me, the story has a natural connection to – Janet and her past, uh-huh. right? And and there's there could be a natural tension between Janet and Hank and the secrets and and all of that, but the movie just glosses over all of what felt like the sort of natural story. Yeah, the- uh it's all just like, yeah, I get it. You were here for a long time. Where the most potential for story was that they you know, when we first meet the rebellion Right? Yeah. And we meet that whole cast of crazy characters. I thought, like, oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be them meeting the Ewoks. It's going to be Battle for Endor. Yeah. And it isn't really at all. <laughs> it kind of forgets well, because- about that until it, until they have to bring it in later. And The Battle of Endor takes makes specific choices and then plays into that, right? It's yeah. like... What if this lower civilization had to go to war, you know, against this empire? And 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 we're going to actually use those specifics. We're going to have them fighting with logs and spears and, and whatever. It gives us an actual sense of place. And once we get into all of that, 
there is no sense of place. It all just sort of becomes this jumble of generic sci-fi fantasy. It, it, it doesn't make any choices on it. It's like, okay, all of that stuff feels a little cut and paste after the fact. What did you think of the design of the quantum realm and the character designs and all of that stuff in general? Uh, in general, I thought it was fine. I I I liked like when we're sort of first introduced to the quantum realm and they're being chased down by like a tardigrade or or an amoeba or whatever. Yeah, all those you know weird, like subatomic creatures. Like I thought, yeah, all of and that I'm was like, really uh, cool. Yeah, exactly. But but by the time we get to this Kang Empire battle, none of that is there anymore. It's just it just feels so generic. Well, it kind of is, but they're in place of jets or starships or whatever. Like, by- but but that's what I mean. But there's yeah. no, there's no, there's nothing about that that specifically like comes into play in any sort of meaningful way, right? Like, right. If there's also a huge Deus Ex Machina that is pretty unexcusable, which yes, and that could have been that could have played into the the setting a lot more right there should have been this whole sort of third act twist where hank pym is like wait a minute these tardigrades or whatever can you know their brains function in a similar way to ants maybe i can talk to them in a similar way like you could have done that in a way that actually played into the setting instead of having them literally show up out of nowhere yeah, there's something that seems to be happening more and more with Marvel. And it's it, it's interesting because this wasn't always a problem with them or at different times it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly become this way. They seem to, to only have like two modes of thought when they're in the writing process. And that is character interactions. I'm not even going to say characterizations because I think at this point they're really just going off of what the actor does for them. But character interactions, In scenes of, of scenes of, you know, people joking around and getting along and repartee and da da da. They have they either have that or they have these overlong, overstuffed, generic action set pieces. And they have a hard time combining story with the set piece. Like the the, the story more and more has less to do with why the characters do the things they do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm, I'm really hoping that here's the thing. I don't think this phase has been as bad as all the haters make it out to be. And again, it's not as, as good as all the Marvel diehards, like, but you can feel the sort of like aimlessness after in game, you know, like they, they felt they, spent this whole time building up to this point and it just it just feels like they're kind of grasping at straws. Well, honestly, uh, the problem is that they're putting out too much. And it's not so much just it's not so much that the, the audience is fatigued. I think I mean, literally the VFX people are f- fatigued. They don't even have time yes, to do these movies. That, that they're releasing product unfinished. The writers, everything everybody involved, these armies of people, they have pumping this product out they don't really have time to to really it feels like the quality control yeah there's no individual like story concern per movie now it's just 
you know, meeting a quota. All of that just seems to be sort of working better with their shows right now. And the movies are sort of being defaulted into this into this sort of we have to try to connect things that don't feel natural and we have to build in this arc that isn't really there and 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 we only have two-thirds of a movie to do it in any way because it all kind of has to end on on you know this giant battle thing and and it just it, it feels unsustainable at the moment yeah right i mean i i uh I think if they just scaled it back to two movies a year, <laughs> you know, and in 1993, two movies a year like this would have been Mana from Heaven. Oh, um, sure. But nowadays we're looking at the schedule and it's like it could be anywhere from four to six. And I feel like this has gotten kind of away from of the movie that we're actually talking about, more just about the MCU in general. I, I do... You know, I did still have a lot of fun with this movie. I think no, yeah, I, I was I was going to say that there was a moment when I was in the theater uh, when it actually won me back because I started off on kind of a weird foot with the movie because I really didn't love the first third of it. But when it won me back, I was like, this might be the best Ant Man movie easily, and then it kind of lost me again. Yeah. Um, and towards that that battle sequence when well the the problem is with this battle sequence i just didn't feel any real sense of stakes yeah. right like i like we're told kang is this big bad guy because of this moment where she like sees the future or the past or whatever but you know we don't actually see any of that it's very we're going to tell you he's bad so we just know he's bad and Hope, you know, hope that Jonathan Majors can sell it, which luckily, for the most part, he can. Yeah, but- he he actually is the MVP of the movie because he took a nothing. Him and Michelle Pfeiffer are by far the most interesting characters here. That's what's so frustrating is there is a natural story there. And yeah. I feel like it, it gets tossed in the background for this sort of status quo. We have to sell the movie on Paul Rudd. And and I don't even mind Paul Rudd in this. It's just this isn't an Ant Man story. This is a, a Janet Van Dyne original Wasp story. And if the movie had had the balls to to go there and just be like Ant Man is a side character in this movie, I I feel like it would have been way better. And um, but again, I I still thought this movie was for the most part pretty funny. Uh, most of the jokes landed for me. Um, I know that Modoc has maybe been the most divisive character. I loved what they did with the character, and I am a Modoc fan. Um, I thought it was an interesting take, and uh, I don't know if you have any Modoc thoughts. You know, I don't. I don't know enough about the character from uh, as a comic book entity. I mean, I I vaguely remember he was there as a thing, but um, I mean, it's not something that I felt super strong about either way. To me, it was the usage in the in the movie was more towards the type of humor I don't love to see from Marvel, um, and increasingly so as as the as the movie went by the time we get to the end battle and the choices that character makes, I was just like, okay, whatever. I, if you say so. 
I liked what they did with the character. And it was one of those things where it was like a... I think he looked... The, the, specifically the CGI, like, face is uh-huh. objectively awful looking. It has no place being in a professional movie. I see. I was it the design or was it the execution that bothered you? the execution? I think you could do that design and make it look, make it look like it something better than a Snapchat filter because that's what it'll look like. I don't know. I didn't I didn't have any issues with that. It, it, for me, it was one of those moments where I was like, I can't believe they actually put Modoc on screen. Uh, I haven't felt that in a Marvel movie in a long time. So I had a lot of fun with it. I was like, yeah, give me whatever Modoc content you're going to give me. Yeah, because for the most part, you know, I feel like I've kind of seen everything under the sun that Marvel's going to throw at me. So I, I thought that was fun. All right. Yeah, I I felt neither one way or the other about him. Um, as a movie as a whole, I'm hmm, I'm somewhere between a, a C plus and a B minus. Um, I think I'm going to have to give it a C plus because ultimately I don't see me ever seeing this movie again. And there's even ones I've liked more that I'm probably not going to see again. But uh the the disappointment of where the story ends up and how it unfolds and where the movie just gives up is a bigger disappointment than the highs that it initially presented. So, I yeah, I feel like uh, I'm, at this point, a C-plus on it. Okay. Uh, I, I am firmly in the B-minus camp. Um, uh, and even, you know, I think that's, both my grade as a movie and with the Marvel curve sort of accounted for. Um, this is firmly middle of the pack for me. Um, I had way more fun with this than I have, than I did with like uh, Wakanda Forever or Eternals, um, uh, which are kind of grim movies in weird ways. And I liked it. I think I liked this more than the second Ant-Man movie. Which I didn't hate. It's just such a, like, I can't even tell you what that movie was about. Right, um, yeah. I mean, I, I I remember seeing it, and I remember there's the bit at the end where they're in the suitcase, but that's about it. <laughs> I don't even remember that. I literally only remember the, like, the ghost girl and that they actually give the wasp a suit. Um, I, I think, again, I, I think the first one works because it's just a simple concept what if an ex-con be got access to superhero powers and i feel like the ant-man franchise especially would do well to remember those roots at some point not in this episode but at some point i think we need to have a longer conversation about when are superhero movies going to be about people saving people again but let's uh let's move on sure Let's go ahead then and talk about our streaming homework, which I assigned us last episode, and that is the film Poetic Justice, uh, written and directed by John Singleton from 1993. Keith. Uh, Yeah, so Poetic Justice is about... Um, this young black woman named Justice 
who is a poet, not joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> early in the movie, her boyfriend dies uh, in this sort of tragic violence. And she meets uh, Lucky, who's played by Tupac Shakur, who is uh, this postal worker. And him and his co-worker are making uh, a longer run to uh, the Oakland area where he plans on seeing his cousin and using like his recording equipment to lay down some tracks and uh, justice ends up sort of tagging along because of her friend Aisha, who's played by Regina King. Yeah. And so it's, a, it's a sort of this road trip coming of age, early 20 something. Uh, what are we doing with our lives? 90s angst kind of movie. Uh, but, you know, from a black perspective, um, and and I would say something of a romantic comedy. Yeah, like, yeah. Not in a traditional sense by any means, but it did. It, the movie is certainly, I would say, mostly like a romantic drama comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely the intent. the The movie opens with this sort of movie within a movie that is sort of this like romantic thriller. With uh, Billy Zane and um, <laughs> Laurie Petty. And, you know, I don't think that is uh, uh, coincidental. You no, know, I think that not. is very intentional and very satiric. And um, honestly, I kind of wish the movie had kept that tone. Because there's this kind of silliness with that. And then it... it sort of loses that pretty quickly and you know to become more more grounded or feel more realistic or whatever but i i felt like there was a kind of playfulness early on in the movie that that gets sort of lost i don't know what what did you think i liked it but it's not a, an easy movie to like and and i think a large part of it is the tone and the pacing of the film. Um, yeah. It's very observational. It's very uh, leisurely paced, mm -hmm. um, which might be a nice way of saying slow. But I wouldn't necessarily say like, you know, throw this guy in the editor and cut this or clip that or whatever, because I feel like a big part of the style of the movie is in the pacing, the way that he holds the camera, the, these long uh, walk and talk monologues. Yeah. The and movie. Th there are moments that it, it feels like it pays off. You know, there are mm -hmm. moments that are, are, you know, like there's this scene pretty early on where you see both justice and lucky in their, you know, the, their sort of natural, uh, environments mm -hmm. um, where you see justice, like, you know, at the hairdressers um, where she works that feels pretty natural and pretty, you know, and I think works. And there's, you know, a similar scene with uh, Tupac and Tone Loke. And again, it, it feels pretty natural and works. I 
the issue this movie has is how these different scenes come together. There are these moments that that are good and and it takes a while to get there. But once the sort of road trip aspect of this movie starts, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there's a lot of fun there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's where a lot of the, the charm of this movie lies is, you know, because both characters are kind of abrasive in their own way. And, you know, once we sort of, I don't know, I, I think sometimes the movie gets in its own way a little bit. Um, yeah. And when it just kind of lets the characters be, it's a, it's an easier watch. I would say that the movie is doing that almost to the point where it's much more interested in story than plot. And yeah, which is why I think that, the denouement when they reach Oakland and stuff doesn't really pay off for especially for as long as it takes to get there. Yeah, and the movie I feels agree. feels like it just sort of wraps up after that. Um, like well, basically it, it, the movie's it, over by the time they get to Oakland. But, yeah, but it still takes like another half hour. Or something. Sure, but like I mean compared is, to it, that that stuff in the van or the uh, mail truck. That feels like 15 minutes where the stuff in the mail truck, there's there's a kind of this episodic journey nature to it. Yeah. It's 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 very stylized. The dialogue is really stylized. The you know, these the these voiceovers by Janet Jackson as as uh uh Justice who's who's reciting these poems over certain sequences and it I feel like John Singleton made the movie he exactly wanted to make. And I, I, I respect the movie for that. I feel like this is of a piece. This, there's sure. nothing here that feels like it was not entirely from the vision of, of, like of, a, of an uh, authorial work. And it also feels I had this, this kind of realization while watching this. Certain sequences when the mid-90s was happening and you know uh reservoir dogs and pulp fiction comes out and everyone's talking about like oh, who is this guy quentin tarantino and this this in- incredibly dense dialogue like we've never heard before and then and i had this realization while watching this like we've never heard this before from white characters <laughs> but like <laughs> Honestly, sure, yeah. John Singleton and Spike Lee and and a lot of the a lot of the black cinema directors that were uh, coming out of the indie explosion at all um, of the late '80s and early '90s, I think laid a lot of inspiration on at least the early Tarantino stuff. I don't think he would. I don't think Tarantino would disagree with that fact. I I think that's absolutely correct. I think that uh, Janet Jackson and Tupac are terrific in this movie. They have great chemistry. Yeah, great chemistry right away. And, you know, both of them are musician turned actors. And I've seen Mm -hmm. Janet Jackson in other stuff, but it never occurred to me that she's like a quote unquote real actress. I always thought of her as sort of a stunt cast. 
But in this, I'm like, oh, this is the acting career you could have had. Like if yeah, like I I don't see her as a pop star. She's yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the uh, the IMDb credits, and um, I guess uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, Lisa Bonet, and Monica Calhoun were all up for the role, and I can a hundred percent see all of them playing this character very well. But yeah, I mean, she's giving a very real performance. I forgot she was Janet Jackson, which is as much as you can ask for. Yeah. And Tupac, you don't forget, is Tupac because it's Tupac. And they're going to Oakland and from L.A. And yeah, but he's he was a star like he should have. He should have had the opportunity to to have an actual like long-spanning movie career because i who knows what he would be making now yeah i I mean i I, yeah it's nothing but tragedy yeah the those two carry this movie and regina king is great too i mean you know she's been good forever yeah it's totally reliable the weakest leg on the table is definitely the actor um Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Joe Torrey. And nothing against the performance. He's he's fine. He's he's keeping up with everybody. But um he's just kind of the most two-dimensional character though. Right. He, he, there's not as much asked from him. Uh and he's he's kind of a character for other characters to react to. Mm-hmm. And 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 to a certain extent, it almost kind of works in spite of the performance because he's supposed to sort of be a little outside of that trio. Like every, everybody there is a little smarter, a little hipper, a little bit more on it, and he's like this really insecure man baby, for lack of a better word. And whatever he brought to it by way of just not quite being at the level of the other actors almost kind of accidentally works. But I also wonder, yeah. like, how would that character, how how much better would the movie have been if somebody a little bit more reliable was in that role? It's hard to tell one way or the other. Um, but there's, you know, there's long stretches of the movie I was, I was really in it. And then about... These like ten minute lulls where it's like, wh- where are we going? So that that's what I wanted to get to was because uh, I agree with everything you're saying. Like it's it, but this movie is has these stretches that are kind of boring, where like nothing is happening from a character perspective or from a you know like a storyline perspective. Like there's this large chunk of not chunk, but like there's this, you know, sort of extended scene where Janet Jackson is getting ready to go and then she gets in the car and the car won't start. And it's like there was kind of just no point to that. You know what I mean? Like there's these sort of long chunks that feels like the movie is spinning its wheels. Um, and where I and, you know, maybe this is just a uh a time thing and, and just, I, I would like lose my focus on it and get just kind of bored. And, but then the movie always would draw me back in. Like mm-hmm. it was always able to do that. 
Um, and, you know, it was largely because of the strength of the performances and, and um, you know, there would be something interesting that would draw me back in and then I would go kind of fuzzy eyed again and lose it. And you know what I mean? Like, it almost felt like vignettes. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's very episodic. Yeah, and and like the connective glue was where I would get lost. Yeah, I mean, I again, I feel like that's... That just is what the movie is. You know what I mean? Like, like I've heard yeah. a lot of people say Richard Linklater's slacker is really boring or pointless or a waste of two hours or whatever. Um, and I can totally understand why somebody would think that. But that's what the movie is. Like the movie, it's a, it's a non-narrative experimental film. And this movie is more narrative than that. And at least exists in certain genres. Uh, to a certain extent, although it's not terribly concerned with genre orthodoxy. Uh, sure. Yeah. But it's, but I feel like it's the idiosyncrasies of this movie that make it just not your average romantic comedy or your average road movie or your average Gen X coming of age movie. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you there. I still could have probably used with about, you know, 15 to 20 minutes less just for my sake. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I agree with you. Like there is this movie has a, a an authenticity about it that that you want to soak in those moments. You want to soak in the, you know, uh those sort of in-between scenes, but it it does it does get to a point where it feels a little dragged out for, for my taste. Yeah. So there were a couple things that kind of surprised me when I was reading about this. I mean, I know that the movie kind of got mixed reviews uh, all throughout it. Um, and I think a large part of that was because it was Singleton's uh, follow up to boys in the hood, which was like, you know, such a smash. And it's like, there was nothing you could really follow that up with that was going to like fairly be judged again, especially a movie like this, which is in a way kind of trying to tell people like, I'm not just the gangster film guy. Yeah. Like this is something else I'm interested in as well. But uh, the movie was made for 14 million, but it made back 27 million and it was actually opened at number one. In the box huh. office, which is kind of surprising. That is interesting. Well, I mean, that might have been because it starred Janet Jackson, and Tupac, but still, I mean, pr- probably, yeah. And it, you know, it was a again a follow up to a hugely successful movie as well. So yeah, I it it makes sense, but it it is interesting that like you don't really hear anybody talking about this movie ever. Not in the same way now. And all of those directors eventually made bigger budget movies. Yeah, you know, for the most—I mean, John Singleton, you know, to his to everybody's chagrin, you know, ended up being the guy who made Too Fast, Too Furious. So, sure. there's that. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that is the episode. Uh, what do you have for us next week for the streaming homework? Uh, so next week for the streaming homework, we are going to watch a Blade of the Immortal. It is the 100th film by Takashi Miike, 
And uh, it is also based off of a popular manga series that I've recently been uh, getting into. So uh, we're going to be watching that. I, I think it's available on Hulu. I think it's actually available on a lot of platforms. I think it's on YouTube for free right now. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so I, I think it's, I, I think you can, but I know for sure it's on Hulu. So, okay. Yeah. That's where I'll be watching it. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics brought up on this podcast or previous, you can contact us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod, where we update when new episodes go up. Uh, you follow should us be, on Letterboxd. Yes, follow us on Letterboxd. Uh, you know, follow for follow, <laughs> if you will. Um, I don't know. Are people still doing that? It's I like I said, we're gonna. It, it's we're still getting it off the ground. We're gonna hopefully update it more. Um, we're not. I'm not necessarily into the idea of rating things too much on there because I kind of want people to use the podcast to do that. Um, oh, I I only use it for lists. Yeah, pretty much. But if you want to know, if you want to see like what uh, we've done in our previous streaming homework, I have a bunch of lists already set up there for that. And, um, you know, maybe we'll I'll look into some of the other functions on the website. Uh, Be sure to leave us a five star rating and a one sentence review over at iTunes or Spotify, Google Podcasts whatever podcast app you use and be sure to read the other articles and written reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff over at MacGuff.in. You can read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal movie reviews or Idaho State Journal arts and entertainment page and you'll see the review archives there for my uh, written work. Uh, follow me individually at VC Cassidy uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I update it sometimes, but not often. Uh, you can also uh, check out my uh, show that I do, uh, my improv show, Improv versus Stand Up at um, Mockingbird Improv in Liberty Station here in San Diego. Uh, and you can follow our show on Instagram at Improv versus Standup. And that is the episode. He made me the ultimate weapon, a mechanized organism designed only for killing. Bye.